a Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. You're listening to the original Say the Damn Score podcast, part of the Say the Damn Score podcast network. Here's your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome to episode 109 of the Say the Damn Score podcast. As you just heard the big voice guy say, I'm Logan Anderson, a freelance sportscaster in the Twin Cities metro area. As always, this podcast is dedicated to sportscasting and sharing stories and ways to improve in the business by talking to sportscasters from all over the country. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to the podcast on the app of your choice and share the podcast with your friends on your favorite social media outlet. The Say the Damn Score podcast is presented by Schold Media Group, the best place online to connect and learn from other young professionals. Grow your career through their engaging content, demo reel critique services, job placement programs, and much more. Find them at scholdmediagroup.com. That's S-H-O-L-D mediagroup.com. Today's episode features John Forsland, the TV broadcaster of the Carolina Hurricanes. And initially, the reason I reached out to him to have him on the podcast is because a friend of mine in the business asked me to. But as I finished it and began editing it, I realized how few hockey broadcasters I've had on this podcast. I've had Howie Rose who was the longtime voice of the Islanders, but I really had him on to talk about being the voice of the Mets, and Kenny Albert, who has a big hockey background, but mostly I wanted to talk about his network experience. And I've also talked with two junior hockey guys who are very talented, Curtis Anderson and Alex Ronsley, but I don't know how I've gone 100 episodes without getting a current NHL guy. Upon reflection, I think the reason for this gaffe is that I've never really understood or watched the game of hockey until very recently when I moved to Minnesota. You probably don't know this unless you've met me in person, but I'm six foot four, I'm a tall guy, and I'm the shortest guy in my family, which has three males. I'm six four, my brother's six six, my dad's six five. My younger sister's six one, my mom's six foot, and the runt of the family, my youngest sister, is five nine. So it's safe to say that we played basketball. Also, growing up in rural Nebraska, hockey was just never very popular among my friends, my peers, people of my small town. I can tell you all about college football and the cult like fandom of the Nebraska Cornhuskers, but I just was never really exposed to the NHL in any kind of a major way. Professionally, I called my first hockey game, and for a long time only hockey game, in South Dakota. It was a one-off fill-in opportunity for the Aberdeen Wings of the NAHL, and I read Hockey for Dummies front to back, called the game, got through it without completely destroying my credibility as a broadcaster, and didn't really think about it again until I came to Minnesota. Since I've been in the Twin Cities, I've had the opportunity to dive into the game a little bit more. I've covered low-level junior hockey marathon-type games where it's one after the other after the other, 15, 16, and under type of games, and you do 7 to 20 of them in a weekend. High school hockey's been a big part of my coverage for my streaming platform I've been building, 
And I even went to my first NHL game a day after my birthday on January 18th when the Minnesota Wild dispatched the Dallas Stars. All this to say, while I'll always be a basketball guy first, just because of playing in college and growing up with the game, I've definitely learned to enjoy and appreciate hockey. The combination of speed, skill, and physicality really is one of a kind in in mainstream sports. So with that in mind, I'm going to try and sprinkle in a few more hockey broadcasters more frequently on this podcast, starting today with John Forsland, the TV voice of the Carolina Hurricanes. And John, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, my pleasure, Logan. Thanks for having me. And I like to start just about every episode uh, with the moment that you got into sportscasting when the 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 craft got into your blood and reading up on you a little bit, you have a pretty unique story about a an exact date in May and a famous goal. Tell us that story and how that led to you falling in love with sports casting. Yeah. You know, it was, you have to go all the way back to the, the glory days of the Boston Bruins. I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, uh, 90 miles West of Boston. And, as a young boy, he started to um, notice the success the team was having. And when they won the Stanley Cup in 1970 on Mother's Day in early May, um, I remember where I was vividly that Sunday afternoon. And uh, I was watching the game at my, my aunt's house. Uh, my family had gone over to see her and uh, happened to be by myself. It was a Sunday afternoon. Uh, they were playing the St. Louis Blues. It's an iconic moment in hockey history. And we all have seen the images of Bobby Orr scoring the goal and, and uh, being tripped up and, and flying through the air and, and the Bruins win the Stanley Cup. And from that moment on, I think what captivated me, that that game was broadcast on CBS. So it would have been Dan Kelly's call of the game. Um, the cadence of hockey, the excitement of hockey, and I don't know what it was, but it struck a, it struck a chord. And from that point on, I was uh, infatuated with um, – with that, with that craft, with, with that type of job. Um, you know, I, I played all kinds of sports as a young boy and like everybody else wanted to aspire to go as far as I could. And the oddity with this is that I really, um, with hockey, it was more or less, uh, I wasn't, I, I, hockey and my, and, and where I grew up wasn't necessarily, um, uh, part of the fabric of the community. I was a baseball player, basketball player, all those other sports and and the team uh, that I grew to love as, as a young man was a minor league team in Springfield and the Springfield Kings at the time, which morphed into the Springfield Indians and so on. But it was a, it was kind of a connection my dad and I had as fans of going to the games. And then what ended up happening was um, as a hobby, I would, I would uh, record myself on a tape recorder that my mom and dad gave me for Christmas. I would say maybe a year or two later and uh, it became my hobby, and it was it was hockey. It was hockey play by play, something I did uh, throughout my teen years, um, you know. And as I got into high school, I continued to do it. My dad would uh, would be my color guy, and we would pass the time. And in those years, um, uh, we were able to watch the Bruins every game. They were televised on WSBK, which was TV 38, and um, 
you know, home and away. Every game was broadcast with Fred Cusick and Johnny Pearson, and I would watch those games. But at, at some point, we turned the sound down, and for the majority of the game, I would call it. And uh, I recorded them all. I saved them all. I wish I still had those tapes. Uh, they were lost in a flood at my mom's house many years ago. Um, but I cherish those memories of my dad, and uh, I guess those were my formative years. And that's where I got the bug to do this. And I wasn't 100% sure of how or whether this would ever happen, but uh, I wanted it at a young age and kind of kept that in the back of my mind. I'm sure it's not lost on you, but it's a little ironic that you're one of the prominent hockey broadcasters in all of the sport, and you grew up in the National Basketball Hall of Fame's hometown. Yeah, Springfield, and I went to Springfield College is where the game was invented, right? So, um, yeah, I, it, it's it, it, hockey has a deep history in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, Eddie Shore, after he retired from uh, his days as a player, uh, bought the Springfield Indians, a minor league team, and throughout the 1950s, they were considered the seventh best team in pro hockey. As you know, there were only six teams in the league and they had kind of a dynasty going and he would own the players and hang on to the players and never let the players really uh, get promoted to the national hockey league, which was what they were there for in the first place. And a little known fact too, is that the the very first um, the infancy stages of the players association were in Springfield, Massachusetts. That's where the players kind of had an uprising against him as an owner uh, and, you know, Alan Eagleson and, and as a young man, a young lawyer, uh, they had their first meetings there. So um, it, that's the advent of that. And that's uh, kind of part of its history. But for, for a long time, going back into the late 20s, uh, minor league hockey existed, still exists in Springfield, Massachusetts and has a good following of fans. And it was just um a couple strokes of luck and, and destiny, I guess, that I, not only would I grow up there and love the team, but then as I uh, morphed into an aspiring broadcaster, that was my first gig. That was my first job back in 1984. Being an eight-year-old and knowing what you wanted to do from that age is an advantage in a lot of different ways. But while your family was very supportive, your I read that your guidance counselor actually told you maybe you don't want to do this. Maybe this is uh, something yeah. at least to have a plan B with. How did you overcome, I don't even know if that's really an obstacle, but how did you come to within yourself to the conclusion that she was wrong and you were right? Well, I keep going to the back of my mind, right? Which is a phrase we always use. So in, in the back of our minds, there's always an idea or something that you might want to create or maybe business you want to start. So in the back of my mind, was this career doing what I'm doing right now. Um, but you're right. When I was in high school and it was time to think about college, I, I sat down with my guidance counselor and I, I said to her, you know, well, she actually asked me first, you know, what is it you want to do with your life? And I told her, I said, I want to be a play-by-play broadcaster in the National Hockey League. And she looked at me and said, you know, <laughs> that's, great. Congratulations on, on that idea. I don't know if I can help you. I don't know the first thing about it because she had never heard something like that. You have to remember, this was probably in, uh, if I was a junior, it was 1978. And I think I was a junior in high school at the time. So the landscape in terms of television was totally different. We didn't even really have cable yet. ESPN was born in 1979. 
uh, you know, you're dealing with, uh, depending on where you lived, three or four stations, uh, you know, maybe four stations on UHF, VHF at, at the time, uh, parabolic antennas on people's roofs just to uh, try and get in the signals from the major cities so that you could get a clear picture. In this case, we had all our local stations, but in order to get the Bruins, we were lucky enough that our house was pitched on a hill. And whatever the case was, uh, well, how we positioned the antenna and with a booster, they used to call those. Uh, uh, my dad went to, I believe, Sears and bought this booster for the antenna. You could go up there and pin it on. And he would go up in winter and climb a ladder and position it. And uh, we'd get the game the best we could. And because we had the best reception, uh, this is where uh, a lot of the guys from the neighborhood would come and, and watch the Bruins. And I would sit in the uh, in the living room, and they would all gather around. And we turn the sound down, and I, little Johnny would call the game, and they got a big kick out of that. But I took it seriously, so I told her this is what I wanted to do, and she said, "Well, okay, that, I I I don't know what to do with that, but I, I'll tell you what, that seems like a a dream job, and and maybe what you need to do is come up with a a plan of attack for for to fall back on, which is good advice." Um, not necessarily the way I like to see the world. I, I always tell people, if you have a dream, go for it. Um, don't sell yourself short. It is difficult. Percentages are always against you. But who's to say you can't do it? So I kind of had that mindset, but I listened to her um, also. And, um, you know, I was a fairly decent uh, baseball player and uh, had aspirations of playing in college and maybe coaching beyond that. So she uh, convinced me that an educational background and to morph into coaching and so on would be a be a, a logical a path for me. So it was. I went to Springfield College as an undergraduate, enrolled there in 1979, and was there from 79 to 83. And um, you know, I was going to either teach in high school or college and coach. That was my that was my uh, my focus, I don't want to say it's my aspiration, it was my focus at the time, but, you know, we all have electives in college, and one of the electives that they had was a course, just one singular course in broadcast journalism. So I took it, and it was taught by a news director at an NBC affiliate, uh, WWLP in Springfield, Massachusetts, and the guy's name was Keith Silver. Uh, he, he taught the course, and um, the final exam was to VO the 1981 Super Bowl. So if I have everything correct here, I think it was the Bengals and the 49ers. And um, anyway, I studied for it. I did my charts. I did everything that I had already uh, figured out along the way. Like I had a system to prepare for a broadcast with all my statistics and information and everything. And I went in there. Most of the people that took the course just wanted something for fun. It was a night course. It was an easy elective. Um, you know, it was, it was a way to get an, uh, you know, an easy A, so to speak, by just showing up. It wasn't that difficult, obviously, because it was just an elective. You weren't majoring in it. So I, um, I did it. And when, when it was over, he said, I have a couple things to ask you. Um, would you leave school and, and, and come to work for us at one of our stations? We have a variety of stations around the country. I think you'd be a great anchor. And I said, no, I'm a junior right now, and that's not on my radar. I don't really want to do that, but uh, thanks for asking. He said, well, then keep this in, in mind. If you ever get an opportunity to do play-by-play -play for someone, go for it. He said, because I think you have a gift that really can't be taught, and if you apply yourself, you might be able to make a career on it. I was pumped up. Like no one had ever told me anything like that. And I was pretty excited. My buddies in, uh, uh, at school knew that I fooled around with this stuff. I did a little radio work here and there and they always thought, you know, you yeah, should be a 
sports announcer. That's what you should do. And uh, anyway, I ended up uh, graduating, going to graduate school. to be. I wanted to work in sports. I, I, so now the sports management thing had just started. And uh, I got a, an assistantship at Adelphi University to teach school, to prep school and coach and go to school nights. And, and um, you know, I would, I would get compensated for it, your, the tuition waiver and so on. Anyway, when that was over, I had to do an internship. And I applied for a variety of different internships around the country and uh, almost got a, a couple of really good ones, but were finalists and fell short. And then I had an opportunity to interview in Springfield, my hometown, which wasn't the plan. I thought I was on the move somewhere uh, with the minor league hockey team. I, I went to lunch with the then owner of the team and he, he said, I'll bring you on as an intern. We need some help in the front office. I have a small staff. And do you have any broadcast experience? And I said, I sure do. Yeah. And he never asked me where, he never asked me how or with whom, or do you have a tape or anything like that? Um, I just said, yeah. And he said, well, here, as part of your internship, help out the guy that we have doing play-by-play, a radio guy right now. He's brand new. He needs a color guy just to fill in the blanks a little bit. Maybe he can give you some experience. So when you leave us, you'll have that on your resume. It's terrific. So I did that the first year, 84, 85. Um, that guy ended up leaving, taking something else. And then they liked me and they gave me an opportunity to call one game. They liked what they heard and he gave me the job and, uh, his name is Peter Cooney. And, uh, I worked for him from 1984 to 1991. And, uh, those are seven of the best years of my life and, uh, got a lot of experience and started my career as a, as a hockey play-by-play guy. And it was really a, a lucky break. And then it was up to me to apply myself. There's a lot of stuff I want to unpack out of that, but I want to go back to something you said when you said that your advisor recommended that you have a plan B. And what do you suggest to up-and-coming broadcasters? Because I think there's a little bit of a, a couple different schools of thought that if you have a plan B, then you're not putting all your effort into plan A and... That's what it takes is an enormous amount of effort. But on the Mm -hmm. same front, you know, there's a lot of people who are extremely talented broadcasters who do everything right that never get a break just because there's not many jobs and a a lot of people who want to do it. So what are your recommendations on plan B's? Plan B is sound. Plan B has realism attached to it. And I think you have to have that, you know, somewhere in your mindset. But it can't, you can't stunt any aggression or ambition or your work ethic to make it happen. Um, that's what I worry about. And so as, as much as you say maybe you need a, an opportunity to fall back to something, um, that might be sound advice, but it shouldn't thwart your efforts to reach your goal. And so the goal is the first thing in everybody's mind that's what you have to focus on as long as you can and i think um when you when you when you start to not be focused on the end game is when you have to start thinking about doing something else it is a a really competitive field it is very difficult especially today there's more opportunity today and but there's less opportunity so there's more opportunity for people to break in and get experience, but then it's really hard to, to get to where you want to go. 
Um, I think it was in my day too, in my formative years, I think it was really difficult, but I also think the landscape has changed. Like we, we our media world is, is quadrupled in size and, and the spectrum of, of all of that is, is far greater. So, um, it kind of goes hand in glove, but I, I would say that you, by all means, if this is something that you want to do, you have to go for it in every sense. And, and it's okay to have a plan B if it's put in its right place, if that makes any sense. It, it can't be, well, I can always do this. I think that will hurt your ambition. So you never want to, you never want to choke that off. You want to make sure that's always there. So I would say that you have to go as long as you can after it to make it happen and do things correctly and work hard and carve out your own identity and a lot of things I'm sure we'll talk about. But I mean, that's, that's kind of what my advice would be um, because uh, any, any other mindset would, would kind of put you already in a defeated um, stance and that's not a place you want to be. The other thing that I thought was interesting and I've done this for four and a half years almost now, and I've talked to a lot of sportscasters who got opportunities while they were in school and they took them instead of staying in school and maybe went back later. Yeah. And you took the other route, and for a lot of them it turned out, it obviously turned out well for you. Why did you value finishing your education over getting the real-world experience at that time? Well, I, I don't think I'm – I'm, I'm pretty conservative by nature, I think. And, and I, don't, I think that was too much of a leap of faith. And there was too much variance attached to that in terms of what I was attempting to do. So I was playing ball and I was, had my mindset on finishing that and finishing, you know, my, um, my academics and, and getting my student teaching done and my coaching certificate. There was too many things going that I equally loved. If I had become a high school or college coach, um, I, I think I would have, I would have loved it. And as a matter of fact, when I, um, did that, uh, when I did that assistance, uh, assistantship at Adelphi, um, I was offered a job at the prep school where I was working, you know, fresh off of that experience, they offered me a job to, um, teach there and coach and coach their teams and, and kind of become part of the faculty. And, you know, I was, I wasn't married yet and we were planning on it, but, uh, that was a shift too. So that was another opportunity that for whatever reason I just passed on to continue down the road because the next thing in line was the internship with the hockey team and then that progression um, led me down that path but I, I would say that you know when um, um, when you when you look at things um, at, at that time in your life that's why you make those decisions and this one here was too out there even though it's something that I wanted and that was something at the time that no one had ever said to me and it, it struck a chord and I never forgot it. Um, I can even uh, visualize it right now. I know exactly where I was, what the room looked like when, and, and what he looked like when he, when he told me that. So it was impactful, but it wasn't enough for me to put the brakes on and, and, and shift. But remember a different world. Like I think today it's something you would think about because these opportunities are few and far between. So if someone gave you an opportunity to get actual hands-on experience, if I was advising an aspiring broadcaster today, I would say go for it. It worked for me, but I think 
it was supposed to work for me, if that makes any sense. Um, I think for anybody today, if it were my son or daughter, I would, I would absolutely tell them if someone's offering you an opportunity, uh, shift and, and go for it because it is a, a really difficult business to break into. It just shows that there there is no one way to do things and everybody no. has to blaze their own trail. But I want to go back again to you mentioned that the seven years from 1984 to 1991 with the Springfield Indians were seven of the best years of your life. Give us a couple stories. What did you love about that time frame doing minor league hockey for the Indians? Well, if you follow my career at all and you follow my style maybe or things that are, you know, attributed to me or attached to me right now, some of the phrases that I use um, and maybe the one that uh, um, has the most uh, identifiable uh, trait attached to me is the hey, hey, what do you say phrase, which started in Springfield in 19... uh, 85, I want to say it was, um, 85 was a tough year for me. Uh, 1985, I just been hired by the, uh, Springfield team, uh, full time. I was an intern in October of 84 through the end of December, 85. When that, when those weeks were finished and my official internship was over, I was either going to look for a job or, uh, maybe there's a chance they hire me and they decided they were going to hire me full time. So, uh, the Springfield Indians hired me. And uh, I worked for a couple of weeks at the beginning of the year, 1985, and uh, received my first paycheck on January 12th. And um, January 12th is a difficult day for me um, because that's the day my dad died. And I uh, received the paycheck. I called a game that night. Uh, my dad was at the game, um, looked up at the end of the second intermission, and we kind of waved. And uh, I was living at home at the time. We weren't married yet. And my fiance. Uh, and I went out after the game and I came home pretty late and um, my dad passed away that night in his sleep. And um, so to, to tie the story together, uh, he used to say that when he, he used to coach us in youth baseball and he used to say that to anybody, Hey, hey what do you say? Like when he said hello to you. And um, I was traveling after that and kind of in a bad way, really. Uh, my dad was my best friend and I told you about how we, uh, worked together, you know, he was my color guy and all those kinds of things. We went to all kinds of games together. We had a really great uh, father-son relationship. And he was a real positive driving force in, in my mindset, too. Both my parents were, but he was uh, he never had a bad day and a uh, terrific sense of humor. And the only regret I have is that he's never seen any of this. He's never seen anything that happened to me. Maybe he is somewhere uh, looking down and, and, and seeing it all. But um, I, I wish I could have shared some of the moments, you know, on this earth with him that I've been able to be part of, like bring him to a Stanley Cup final game or something like that. Uh, he would have been in his glory. But anyway, that, that phrase, uh, I was thinking I was on a bus ride, and I know where I was going. I was on a bus ride, I believe, either to Baltimore or Hershey, but it was a long one. And I was feeling kind of down, and I thought, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this phrase on the air tonight just so I can kind of rekindle his memory. And I did. And I just placed it in the game somewhere randomly. Um, and then as the years went on, maybe a year later, um, I decided to tag a big goal with it. And then as another year maybe passed, by, I decided to tag a goal that I felt would uh, bring closure to the game. 
And as a young guy, I made some mistakes with it. I got too carried away with myself. But as I've become, uh, I hope, a better professional as we mature and move on and get to a level, um, I still use it today. And it's a, it's it's strictly in honor of him. And it is on a goal that either seals the game or puts the team in a position to win in my mind. Sometimes I, I put a whammy on, on, on the team. And, and again, I only use it on local broadcasts, never on the national broadcast. But it's attached to uh, the Carolina Hurricanes now and my call of their games. And, um, and that's why I do it. And I remember... Uh, early in my career, someone took a shot at me uh, when I first got the job in Hartford, media critic, and said that it was kind of a hokey thing to say, contrived catchphrase. I never defended it. I just let the guy write whatever he wanted to, and I just went on with my life because I knew the uh, you know the impetus behind it. I I, I knew what uh, what it meant. And um, anyway, it wasn't until very, very later on in my career that someone wanted to ask me about it again, and I got to tell the story. So, and I have countless times since. So, I mean, so that's one thing that came out of the Springfield experience. And the other thing out of the Springfield experience was my relationship with a guy by the name of Jimmy Roberts. Well, there's actually, you know, a couple people involved here. Now, first of all, Peter Cooney is the, the owner who gave me an opportunity, and, uh, and, and Peter owned the Indians up through the early 90s. He owned them from like 82 to the early 90s and sold the franchise. Um, he's a sports agent now. He represents a lot of hockey players in the National Hockey League and throughout the minor league ranks and a family advisor and so on for hockey. He also does work for me. He's also been my agent since around 1997, a dear friend. So it's funny how that comes full circle. And the other name is Jimmy Roberts. Jimmy was a coach, a longtime National Hockey Leaguer, Stanley Cup winner with the Montreal Canadiens. But um, the last few years I was in Springfield, he was the head coach. Then he went on to coach the Hartford Whalers in 91-92, which is my first year in the National Hockey League. But it was riding buses with him. He taught me a lot about myself. He taught me a lot about the game. He even helped me in my interview techniques, which were raw and I thought were pretty good. But he 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 helped me listen. This was a coach of a of a pro team, and we spent so many hours together, you know, on the road because that's just how it works at the minor league level. You know, he'd have me roll back tapes in his hotel room, and we we sit there and have a bite to eat or whatever, and, and he would listen and kind of critique it and give me some advice. But anyway, he was a he was a terrific guy, and I I grew up a lot. You know, under his tutelage, uh, he became like a, a second dad in many ways uh, for me. And um, I think those are the memories that I have. And there's a gazillion crazy stories, as you know, uh, with the American Hockey League back throughout the 80s when we we're in a different era. And it was like an upscale version of Slapshot. But um, uh, those stories are kind of uh, kind of trite com- in comparison to uh, people who molded you, people who helped you, and certainly a phrase that you know I still use today uh, for the most important person in my life really was my dad. So I mean that's that's why I do it. You mentioned long bus rides, and I've found yeah. that interesting. Uh, at a previous stop in my career, I covered a small college in South Dakota that was a long way from everything, and got to learn the joys of you know, six to 10 hour bus rides on a, con- on a consistent basis. What did you learn to do to survive the long bus rides and make them more tolerable? 
Oh, you know, that was difficult too, because uh, very few buses and, uh, we didn't have the, uh, uh, buses that even had VCRs back in the day. You had, you had to really be with a team that spent a little bit more money than we did or in the national hockey league to have a bus that had a VCR with television screens. You could throw a, a, a tape in and watch a movie. So what did we do? We listened to music on our Sony Walkmans. Isn't that sound uh, caveman like? I mean, that was, uh, <laughs> you know, cassette tapes and you try to pull in radio shows and you try to get games, uh, you know, at night and, and listen to games. But uh, the frequency would, you know, you'd, you'd be there and then you'd be gone. And many of these outposts in the minor leagues, as you can relate to, you're in the middle of nowhere. So you're really not going to pull in too many radio stations. Uh, so you, you you had to think a lot, and you and you had a lot of time to yourself. I I, I established great relationships with players. We would sit and talk because they they couldn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. Uh, you would just stay up. You're wound up from the game. They from playing. Me from doing my my thing. Uh, the only difference was when we got back to Springfield or wherever we were going, uh, they could go home and sleep, and I would have to get right into the office because, uh, you know, I, I worked for a guy in, in Peter who demanded an awful lot, who told me that my broadcast, my preparation for my broadcast, and the actual broadcast was like the lowest thing on his totem pole. The highest thing in his totem pole was, could I bring in some revenue by selling advertising? Could I do the PR the right way? Could I do the stats the right way? Could I do some group sales and other things and community work for him the right way? And then I was the radio guy. So I had to learn all those things. We only had four people in the front office. So I, I became a uh, jack of all trades in, in many ways, which which also helped me in, in my career. Um, but th- that's what we did. And, and uh, again, I think one of the, the best things we ever did was, and it wasn't with Jimmy, it was a, with a coach by the name of Gord Lane back in 1987. Uh, the equipment guy, the medical guy, myself, and the coach, decided to create a first-class section of the bus. So we actually put a curtain up, and uh, we drew the curtain, and we had some wine and cheese up in the front for just the four of us, and then we had the <laughs> curtain, and then we had the players in the back. So we did that for a few road trips until they uh, they didn't like it anymore. But we rubbed it in. We were in first class, and they weren't. But uh, we had all our foam, like we had foam on the uh, on the um, armrests, you know, so you could put your head there, maybe a pillow. Uh, but you contrived a way to get yourself comfortable because, again, you know, six to eight hours on average, what are you going to do? You got to get some sleep. There was one way I could get into this one specific position and sleep on a bus. Otherwise, I always had a lot of trouble. But that's yeah, neither here easy. nor there. The PR and the other stuff involved with the minor league position had a big effect on you eventually getting your big break. And I found it very serendipitous that. You fell in love with broadcasting in the game of hockey with a Bobby Orr goal, and he also had a big influence in you getting your big break with the Hartford Whalers. Uh, tell us that story and how you ended up with your big break with Hartford. Well, in the last year that I was in Springfield, they had been affiliated with the Islanders for many years. They won a Calder Cup with the New York Islanders in 1990. In the 90-91 season, the owner decided to shift affiliates and go to Hartford, excuse me. And we, we inherited uh, the Binghamton Whalers at the time. It set a futility record in the American Hockey League for the fewest wins. And um, 
we had the majority of those players now are trying to sell that to our fan base after winning the Calder Cup the year before with the Islanders. Many of those players went to Albany, New York, and we're on a team now known as the Capital District Islanders. And uh, our owner sprinkled in a few free agents, the same coach, Jimmy Roberts. And in that season, that team, for whatever reason, mostly Jimmy's coaching, had the best overall record and would win a Calder Cup again. So it was back-to-back Calder Cups. And Bobby Orr was doing some work for the Hartford Whalers. They had formulated through their owner an advisory board of big-name celebrities, former athletes, um, actors, you know, name recognition people that, you know, there was this board supposedly that they were advising the Whalers on how to become a better franchise, but it was really a, a, a glitzy thing and, and kind of a showy thing for their fans. But Roger Staubach, Yvonne Lendl, Jim Calhoun, the coach of University of Connecticut basketball, these were the names on the board. And then there was Bobby Orr. And Bobby Orr was on the board because the then general manager of the Whalers was Eddie Johnston, the former goalie with the Bruins back in the day. And they were great friends and he got Bobby to do this. So Bobby would pay attention to obviously the Springfield team, the minor league affiliate come to Springfield every now and again. And he, he saw my press notes that I used to do. And I took a lot of pride in these things. Um, and, and I worked hard at them and it, it was a, uh, if I do say so myself, a really nice packet of information that not a lot of the AHL teams would put out. And he thought it was first rate and NHL quality. And then he heard me on the radio. And so anyway, it was Bobby who then went to Eddie EJ. And then he went to Richard Gordon, Mr. Gordon, the owner of the whalers at the time. And uh, they were going to create a position within their hockey department. They wanted an information director to handle all press releases and transactions and some of the paperwork within the hockey department. And they wanted um, someone to do color with Chuck Caton at the time um, on radio. And that was my position. And they offered it to me and I grabbed it. I said, absolutely. But a funny thing happened because within a couple of weeks after the draft, which was in Buffalo that year, the uh, incumbent PR director didn't like this. He wanted to still control the hockey information. He was going to keep his job, but he was going to work on the business side. He didn't like that. So he quit. When he quit, I was called back to the owner's house. Um, you know, I was away on vacation in Maine and they brought me back down and he offered me the PR job, which doubled my salary, gave me full benefits, gave me a 401k and put me on a path that I, I, at the time, after seven years and striking out with a few jobs, San Jose job, a devil's job, there was an Islanders job that might or might not be there. Um, I was in the mix for all these things, but that didn't happen. So I had to do something. And, and my personal life, my wife and I were at a stage where we wanted to start a family. She was working full time and carrying benefits. And that's how I was able to work um, in the American Hockey League, because in those seven years, I never had any benefits. Um, but I did it because I was aspiring to do what I do, right? So you do whatever it takes. And anyway, um, Bobby helped me get that gig, helped me get that job. And then it was, you know, a, a couple of years of doing that with the Whalers. Ownership changed, and the new owners came in. They kind of sat me down and asked me what I wanted to do. And I was, I was, positioning myself to leave anyway, because I wanted to be a broadcaster. And I thought I had a real good opportunity lined up and I was going to leave. 
and uh, Jim Rutherford and Peter Carmanis and their group had just bought the team. And uh, Jim's the one that asked me to just stay for one year in the 94-95 season as a PR guy and get them through their first season of ownership. And then you could you could see what would happen after that. Maybe there would be something with the Whalers. Well, anyway, there was. And he made it happen. And that's the following season, 95-96, is when I became full-time television announcer for the team. But Bobby Orr was, uh, it's ironic how that worked out because, uh, you know, it's its an interesting story that that would be the one moment that kind of, that gave me the um, uh, the bug to do this back in 1970. And then here we are in 1991, and I didn't know Bobby at the time at all. And uh, he kind of became a, a, a mentor for me and, and helped me. And uh, um, to this day, I, I, I include him as, as people who were, very influential in helping me get to where I am. Did you ever tell him the story of his goal and how that led you into oh, yeah. uh, becoming a hockey broadcaster? Yeah. What did he say to that? No, he, he, he laughed and, but he appreciated it. And, and, uh, in my office at home, as a matter of fact, I'm looking at it right now. He wrote a letter. Uh, they, the Canes honored me back in, uh, 2014 for, um, for 20 seasons. And, um, and anyway, um, they gave me a bunch of things that night. And one of the things that I received was this framed letter from Bobby, um, which is spectacular, where he just goes on about um, how he enjoys my call. He enjoys watching me, blah, blah, blah. But uh, um, that doesn't really matter as much to me as the fact that he took the time to do that. And that, you know, if you, if you ever meet Bobby Orr, is great. But play, and I know people say this all the time, great at what he does, even a better person. Um, but Bobby Orr is all of that for a guy who is the, one of the greatest, if not the greatest player to play in NHL history, he is a remarkable human being and, and is just a, a wonderful guy who cares for people and tries to help people any way he can. And he did for me. How frustrating was it to be in that PR job, knowing you were so close potentially to achieving yeah. your dreams but not being able to quite get there yeah it was it was frustrating because i was um you, you have to have confidence in what you do too right so um i i was confident in my abilities and i felt that i could do a really good job at this if i was just given a chance and for some reason i wasn't be, being given a chance and so guys would come in guys that i respected and then there were other guys that I would come in and I'd listen to him and I'd be like, yeah, I think I can do better. I think we're all like that. I think we're, we all think that way and that's the way you should think. But when you're, when you're there and you're, you're doing something and I was 29 when I got that job and I had a bunch of people working for me underneath me. And so it was, it was different. Now I, I did enjoy it and I did put everything I could and I hope I did a good job with it. And then when uh, things were kind of tumultuous with the Whalers at the time and Eddie Johnston ended up getting fired and Brian Burke came in for a year and then Brian took a job with the NHL and, and Brian was instrumental in, in helping me just stay afloat because there was so much turbulence going on with the Whalers. Um, I was kind of caught up in it uh, internally. And uh, at times the owner didn't see eye to eye with what I was saying was the right way to do things. And, uh, I think there was a there was time there where my job might have been in jeopardy and, and Brian Burke helped uh, solidify my job and keep me going so that I was in a position to 
work for the next group, which was the Peter Carmanis led group when they came in in 1994. If that didn't happen, maybe I'm not doing this either. Maybe I do something else. He wanted me to um, keep going with him wherever his career was going, which I was flattered by. And if I wanted management, I think I, I could have done that, but I didn't want management. I wanted to, I wanted to be a broadcaster. It's what I really wanted to do. It was the only thing that was going to make me 100% happy and fulfilled. And luckily, I was able to stick it out. When you took over the full-time play-by-play position in 1995, you probably had to feel like, you know what, now I have some stability. I'm finally doing what I want. You were in New England pretty much your entire life. Uh, You said you were willing to move. You just never really had to get out of the area. And then the Hartford Whalers become the Carolina Hurricanes, and they move down south. Walk us through your feelings when when you found out that that was going to be the case, and when did you find out compared to the public? Well, we, we weren't told much. We just read things and heard things, and it was uneasy. And so after going through, you know, the initial year, 95, 96, which was difficult. My first year working for the Whalers was difficult. I replaced Rick Peckham. And Rick, is, as you know, is an excellent broadcaster. And he went on to an outstanding career with the Tampa Bay Lightning. will be retiring at the end of the season. But, you know, I finally got my opportunity and in, in Hartford, which, as you point out, is basically my own backyard but I wasn't very popular at the beginning because, you know, I was unseating a guy who had been there for a while and did a very good job. And so now it was almost like, really, I've waited all this time to um, have to win people over, which I had to, and, you know, win some of the media over um, when we actually had, you know, almost every newspaper had a media critic who would, you know, do that and uh, not only national games but the local games and, and so on so you know working with sports channel at the time and making sure that Daryl Ray and I did a, a really good job in our first year I think we really did um, obviously really biased on that but uh, by the end of the year they were writing real favorable stories about the two of us and you know that that was all well and good and I started to get a few sniffs with ESPN at the time a guy named Larry Christensen was coordinating producer. He started using me on some of their games and that was a feather in my cap at a, at a young age. But then this move was going to happen or was it going to happen? And we really didn't know the whalers had played the Colorado avalanche around St. Patrick's day in, uh, in, in 1997. So 1996, 97, the 97, 98 season was the first year here. So, uh, in that in that uh, spring, um, the Whalers uh, were shut out after out shooting Colorado by like a, a 45-15 margin or something. Patrick Waugh stood on his head. And they won the game. And I was living in Springfield at, at the time with my wife and, and drove home after the game, which is about a half-hour drive, and uh, got home early enough, 7 o'clock game, to, um, you know, get home to put on the local news. And we put on the local news. And it's breaking news at 11 o'clock. And there's a reporter on the on the uh, the uh, steps of the state capitol breaking the story that the Whalers were moving. That's how we found out. We looked at each other and said, "This is over." And you know, it would it was like on the front burner of news for a long time. Then it quieted down. Then it looked like 
there was going to be a resolution between Peter Carmanis and John Rowland, who was the governor of Connecticut and, and the state authority that had a piece of the pie with the building. It looked like they were going to carve out a future and maybe a new building and we're going to stay. And then in, in the blink of an eye, something happened. There was a meeting, there was a blow up and the whole thing blew up and Carmanis said, we're moving. And he paid off the, the state, he paid off the league, whatever he had to do to get out of his lease, he did. And he moved the team. So now what happens? We look at each other, you know, and uh, are we in? Are we moving? Are we staying? Whatever the case, um, about a, a three or four weeks later, the front office was informed. And it was a bad day, too, because many people were not asked to go with the team to North Carolina. And some of us were. And I was lucky enough to be asked to go. But I had one year left on my contract. And a funny thing happened at the end of that season. Fred Cusick, who I mentioned earlier, was the longtime voice of the uh, Boston Bruins, 40 years, uh, was retiring. And um, they asked him in the Boston Herald, do you have any ideas for a successor? Who would you like to see be the next voice of the Boston Bruins? He mentioned a couple of names, and then he said, but for me, my choice, and I had I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you the story first, and then put a, a little sub story on it. He, he said John Forslund in Hartford would be an ideal successor. Young guy, I think he does a terrific job with the Whalers. Well, Fred Cusick, in in all of the years, which was wasn't many, okay, because I got in the league in in '91, but this was '97. He would come in as a grumpy old guy and call the games and never say hello to anybody. And I was too intimidated to actually go to him and say, Mr. Cusick, I'm John Forslund. I grew up listening to you ad nauseum. You mean a lot to me. You're an influence. Uh, I never did it. And I regret that. Um, but he, anyway, he recommended me for it. I, I auditioned for the job, TV 38. In those days, they had a split feed. The home games were on Nesson. The road games were on TV 38. This was for the road games, only 40 games. And there were three finalists, Sean McDonough, myself, and a guy named Dave Shea. Dave Shea got the job. Sean was still, I believe, attached to the Red Sox at the time, doing a bunch of other things. Um, and then there was me. Um, I don't know why they didn't settle on me. But anyway, I came back to um, North Carolina, uh, met with Jim Rutherford, and he said, you know, I know you're hot on this Boston thing. And they hadn't made their decision yet, but it really looked like they were going to go in a different direction. And he said, I'd like you to come and try it for one year. And, you know, we did. And my wife was, uh, we had a one-year-old. She was pregnant with our second child eight months in, and we moved here. And it was the greatest thing that ever happened to us as a family. So, again, things work out for a reason. And, and I didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. And when we first got here, that was the case, because this was like uh, a team that had been dropped out of the sky. It wasn't an expansion team. It didn't have any buildup. It was uh, most of the people here in North Carolina were asking, why is there an NHL team here? Not, oh, we're so happy that there is. How can we get tickets? It was, why? Why is this team here? We don't get it. So we started from scratch. How much thought, I know you mentioned this a little bit, but how serious were the considerations to decline the offer? And what were those discussions like with your wife and your family? Well, you know, it was tough. It wasn't, it wasn't easy. You know, our whole family is up in New England and, you know, you have your extended family and maybe it was too easy for us at the beginning. Um, 
you know, I'm from Springfield. I worked for Springfield in the American Hockey League. Um, I thought I was going somewhere else to work in the NHL. I ended up working in Hartford, which is 28 miles away. So much of it was easy, and maybe that made it more difficult. But we, we were coming, you know, at the time, if you were coming into the South, it was different. It was a, a place that was accustomed to college football, college basketball especially, a lot of NASCAR, didn't have a lot of room for uh, the National Hockey League. They had a couple of minor league teams here. There was a ECHL team in, in Raleigh. There was American League team and ECHL teams and the old Eastern League was in Greensboro. But those were, you know, niche fan bases. Those were uh, cults. It wasn't, there wasn't obviously any attention paid to it. And, and, and really, in the NHL, there wasn't at, in those years. It was so regionalized. And that's why I think Gary Bettman wanted to broaden the footprint of the National Hockey League by going to all these markets throughout the Sun Belt because the league was just becoming Canada and northern cities that had had it for years. And, and it was it was difficult to sell a footprint of national advertising when your your league was in the northeast in Canada, basically. Maybe St. Louis and the, a team out in California, but then they had to add more teams to California to make it work, and the rest is history. But um, it, it was a difficult decision. It wasn't a slam dunk. It wasn't a slam dunk, and we came down with um, some excitement, but also a lot of uh, curiosity and apprehension. And it was hard to get a TV deal. Uh, we only televised 29 of the first 82 games our first year here. And so my first season, after all of that, coming here, you felt like you were in a professional black hole. And it was a, it was a different world. You didn't have subscriptions to NHL uh, center ice available. You know, today it's, uh, it's menu-based. If, if you live anywhere, if you want to pay your subscription, you can watch every game in the National Hockey League. You couldn't do it then unless you had a satellite dish. So it was kind of like out of sight, out of mind. What am I doing? I'm coming to North Carolina to be a, the, the one of the voices of the team on television when it was actually better to be the radio guy. There was more attention paid to the radio than there was television at the beginning of this thing. And um, how is this going to affect my career? Those were all fair questions at the time. I, 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 wasn't, I was unsure of where my career was actually going to go. Um, it worked out great, but uh, it wasn't it wasn't part of the plan. It wasn't like it was, oh, yeah, this is a natural progression now, and we'll be okay. I want to dive into your preparation process, which reading up on, I found it uh, pretty interesting with some of the things you do. Uh, the nickname that your analyst, Trip Tracy, gives you is The Count because you get up really early every day no matter what the travel or circumstances are like, uh, walk us through your preparation process for an NHL game. Well, it starts a, a couple of weeks out when I try to look at the schedule and I try to see, you know, on what nights am I going to be available to watch, you know, X team play. <clears throat> now, when you're doing so many games, um, you know, it, it becomes very difficult to do that. But today with, uh, uh, condensed games that are available and, you know, you can, you can basically scroll through games and see things that you want to see for line combinations, defense pairings, penalty killing units, power play units, and so on. You know, these are all things that are very important. 
when I watch a game on television, I, I try to um, call the game in my head as I watch it. So I'm not just watching for the enjoyment. Sure, I get enjoyment out of watching any hockey game, but I'm trying to attach skating styles to numbers, uh, combinations of players and how they're used, uh, defensive zone starts, offensive zone starts, all these things I'll take notes on anyway. That's kind of like the basis of the prep. And as you get into the um, the actual game that you're about to do, there's some prep work that I will do just to kind of lay out my, my biographical charts, you know, the day before. And then, yeah, on the day of the game, it starts for me at, at 5.30. I, I get up 5.30 every day, of the, every day of the week. It's summertime, too. So I'm an early riser, and I get after it. And I don't think I'm any different than anybody else. I just have my own system, and I think that's important. And uh, it's an old-school system. I don't use a lot of uh, computer. I, um, I write everything out. I formulate my own charts. I have my own scorebook that I kind of devised. I know where everything is when I need it during a game, but I have a pretty good memory. And when I write something down, I remember it. And that's how I retain information. So from 5.30 to say around nine, there's some prep work done. Then I'll usually head off to the morning skates and cover those off, come back uh, about another hour and a half of, um, of putting all the loose ends together from the morning skate and making sure the lineups are I don't have any questions about who's playing, who's not. My lines are in, my D pairs are in. I know the goalies. I talk to both coaches, get all that set. And usually by two in the afternoon or a seven o'clock game, I'm, I'm finished. And I don't look at anything from that point on. It's uh, if you're on the road, it's, uh, you know, obviously you get ready to go to the rink. You can go to the rink and get ready to do the game at home. Same thing, drive in. I like to have some time before the game of just being in uh, some level of serenity. There might be a production meeting. There might be a pre-taped interview that you have to do. But as far as cramming for information, I never believed in cramming for the exam at the last minute. So I want to be prepared as much as I can going in. So I'm kind of in a relaxed state when it's time to hit the air. And that's what I do. And then it's, uh, you know, a wash, rinse, repeat. I mean, it's uh, it's the same thing when you get to the next day or the next game. And when you're going, you know, during the season rapid fire, and there's some weeks I'm doing five games in seven days, you know, you, it, it's hard to find the time to prepare. Uh, with day of the game travel, um, you know, you need some sleep. You might need to take a nap. Uh, you have to catch up at some point on it. But in this business, you still have to find the time to prep. Calling the game is actually the easy part of the day. It's the prep time that's really important and sometimes arduous to get through. When did you start waking up at 5.30 in the morning? Do you naturally wake up at that time, or is it a decision that you made at some point that you wanted to be an early riser? Yeah, I think it's just based on my career and the fact that my day takes on that kind of uh, a trend. So I, I, don't, um, I, I don't necessarily, um, when I look back at my life, I was like most people, I slept when I was a kid. I slept in college when I could, um, you know, and then early in life you'd sleep on weekends or whatever. But now I think that I've gotten in this regimen. I kind of just do it as a habitual thing. And, um, and I get my sleep, you know, it's funny, your body tells you when it's time and I value the time on the road when I can shut down early and, and catch up. And, and it works for me because if I, if I stockpile it in season, then I kind of feel normal. Um, when the season's over for me, 
it takes me about a week to actually feel like a real normal human being again, where you have a normal sleep schedule, normal meal schedule, and you get on with everyday life. And that's the beauty of the summer. But I still get up at 5.30. I just can get up and have a cup of coffee or two and have some breakfast, get a workout in or something, and catch up on some news, watch television, relax, and just have some family time. But the hours don't change. I just like getting up early in the morning now. I also read that you often arrive at the rink very early. And I thought that was interesting because you mentioned you would often find information out based on people showing up to skate or work things out or being able to talk to coaches early when there's nobody else around. How did you develop that, and what? how do you use that effectively to get information? Well, it's funny because I think where I'm most comfortable is at the rink. And so the reason why I would go early is because I feel more comfortable there than being in the hotel. But then over time, what you figure out is that if you're here early, it's remarkable. You just grab a coffee and and go down and hang around the rooms. You're going to get the players that come early. You're going to get the coaches sometimes where they'll actually come out and talk to you because they're not pressed up against team meetings and a more condensed schedule, which centers around game time. It's invaluable, some of the information that you can come up with. So, yeah, I, I find that you get a little serenity. I don't feel as rushed. I can lay out my stuff. So for, uh, for any game, I'm there at least, you know, four hours before. And um, that is some, some people like to be there two hours before. It doesn't have any effect on how well you do the job. I, I know people that can show up five minutes before the game and win an Emmy. That's them. I couldn't do that. I have to have a different type of um, um, schedule just for my own mindset so that I just feel comfortable, I feel ready, um, and I like being there. In the morning, too. In the morning for the morning skates, I get there very early. i am be the only person in the rink, listen to some music, just relax. Um, I find that uh, in an odd way, and it's odd for a lot of people, but for me it's not. I feel like it's the most serene place I can be. Far better than being stuck in a hotel room. You talked about this early on why you have your catchphrase and what you use it for. There's always a back and forth between uh, broadcasters on whether they like or dislike catchphrases. And uh, outside of your tribute catchphrase, you have a couple other ones. And how do you come up with them? And when do you decide the right time to use them is or if they work? Well, you know what? I, I, I use them because I trust myself that I think they would work. And um, I try to make them as spontaneous as possible. I tell people it's never a script. Um, there are certain instances within a game, off and running. Obviously, that's an early, an early goal, you know, five minutes or so into the game. And after that, I don't consider a team off and running because, you know, they're already deep into the game. Um, that's hockey baby, which I use is on a perfect play, an unbelievable play that depicts the game for what it is. So you have to see it to believe it. So I don't say it unless I see it. When I see it, I just say it. Some of the other things that I've come up with over time, I've just tried, I enjoy them. I think for me, it, 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 it makes it a little bit different. I try not to overuse them. I try not to be syrupy. I, again, I try to be, um, 
unscripted and spontaneous. And I think the spontaneity aspect of it is the most important thing. You have to be believable. So if I'm saying what a goal, what a save, um, it's because it is. And, you know, that's when I'll use it. The, the hey, hey, what do you say thing is closure for me. The game's over in my mind. Um, it, over time, it's built a little identity for me, but I think also for the local team where most of the phrases get used. So there, there's some branding that gets done. I think that's good for, for marketing. I think it works in today's world with social media. I think younger people like it. And so at least I hope they do. And so we're supposed to do a bunch of things. And I always say that, you know, for me, I've kept this in mind as a kind of a motto. The word ice. You have to inform. You have to be concise as you inform. And you have to entertain. Those are the three most important things I think a broadcaster has to keep in mind. The information value, the informational value of what we bring to the table, how concise we do it so people can actually grasp it when they listen or view. And and make sure that and I did this when I was a younger broadcaster. There's no question about it. Trying to let people that are watching or listening be impressed by my knowledge. I do a ton of prep work. Most of it I never use. I would say 95% of it I never use. I have it just in case. If I use a couple of nuggets, I'm proud of myself because they apply. When I was younger, I would make sure I get it in because I want to prove to you I'm an informed guy. And I think that that's the wrong way. So I think you have to be concise because it's like an attention span. That's what works for people. That's what works for your audience. And then the entertainment value. We can't take ourselves too seriously. I don't. You have to entertain. You have to have fun with it. We're doing sports. This is not politics. This is not medical stuff. This is this is not, you know, a, a counseling show where you're trying to uplift the spirits of distraught people. This is entertainment. This is like music. You're supposed to enjoy this. If I'm not having a good time, then how, how the hell is anybody else going to? So that's kind of the way I look at it. Just a couple more questions, and we'll let you get back to uh, back to whatever you planned on doing today. What did you do during the lockout season where they didn't have any hockey all year? Well, the canceled year was the worst year, uh, really the worst year. Uh, and, and in a good way, um, it, it gave me an opportunity to experience a lot of things, which a lot of people talk about, you know, with their families, which is which is tremendous. So. Uh, that year, 04, 05, there were legitimate holidays. The only drawback in my profession as a hockey broadcaster is that the holidays are hurried. You're worn out. You're usually in a place where you're, yes, enjoying the holidays for what they are, but you're recognizing the fact that you're probably traveling very soon or prepping for a game or maybe working through them. And that's not easy. It's not easy on, on the person doing it. And it's not easy on your family. So our families, uh, our family situation that year and other family situations in the three lockouts I've been through have all been really good. But the canceled season was hard because there was a lot of talk about it going into a second year. And there were financial ramifications for a lot of people, us included. 
and um, we didn't have anything in the fire. You know, we, we weren't fighting for anything as uh, broadcasters, but we're kind of attached to the game. You live off the backs of the, the athletes and what they do. So you had to wait for this um, situation to resolve itself. And so there wasn't, there was that aspect of fear, wondering, you know, where are you going professionally with this? Where's the league going? So that was kind of dark. And then there was the downtime. It was like a forced retirement and you couldn't get work. Um, no one was going to hire you to take someone else's gig in another sport. Those gigs are already taken. Uh, no one was going to come up with some other thing that you could do, even though some teams tried. Uh, this team did a couple of things, but we didn't do anything. There wasn't anything to do. So you had a lot of time to uh, kind of get down and kind of get depressed. So it was professionally depressing, family side of it, uplifting. Um, but then you, you wondered, you know, where this would go. The, the one thing that I did do once there was closure and there was for sure no um, hockey at all, um, I coached a, a middle school baseball team. So I helped my friend who was the head coach and uh, had a great time with it. So in, in early March, I could uh, get into the tryout phase of the whole thing, late February, whatever it was down here, probably late February, and then coach the team that year. And I had a great time with it. But, um, you know, I knew that it was a one and done situation, um, but that's what I did. So um, I look back at those situations and they were, they were difficult. And in my career, you know, there are three bumps. There's the first one in 94, 95. There's the canceled season, 405. And then there's the one in 2012. And, uh, you know, luckily that one was figured out and we went to a, a 48 game schedule. But um, those are those aren't easy times because you go from full speed ahead to nothing at a young age or any time you're employed. Unless you're ready to retire, forced retirement is not a good thing. Just from, and I don't want you to go into too many details on this, but just from a financial setting, I imagine that NHL broadcasters do well comparatively, but I'm guessing there's not a lot of multimillionaires who can just not work for a year oh. and money not be a problem. Did you have a little uh, emergency fund set aside you were able to look, you were able to live off of, or how did you financially get through that time? Yeah, that's a great question, Logan, because um, the answer is no. And and I think everybody that listens to this, you can relate to it. We all can relate to it. So in order to reach a certain level in this business, there are dues to be paid. And you normally work at, at jobs and positions where you're getting little to no money because people are telling you it's the opportunity. And that's why you do it. It's the spirit of the opportunity is why you do it to aspire to something else. By the time you reach a level, yes, you're well compensated, no question about it. But you put in so much time, you've probably dug a little bit of a hole. You got to get out of that hole. And then at that time, too, we were 10 years into our marriage before we had our first, um, our first baby, which was back in 96. We moved here in, in 97. And in 03, we had our third child. So we had three little ones, 04, 05. And so things were happening, you know, too fast for us. And um, my wife was stay at home. She wanted to do that. And we were blessed that we were able to do that. Um, but it was tough. 
And so we had to make, uh, we had to do some adjusting. We had to make some sacrifices. We had to just get through it. If it had gone to a second year, it would have been dangerous. We're lucky that we're able to keep our house. We're able to keep things moving in that direction. A lot of people that you never heard about um, had problems during that season. People connected with the game in one shape or form. Not everybody was looked after, you know, by their teams or by their networks. So you had to sit and wait. Some people could prepare for it. We really couldn't. It was a stage of life thing. Um, you know, we were trying to put away money to put the kids through college where they're at right now. So um, it was it was hard. And then in 12, it hit again. You know, what are we doing now? So there was always that kind of step back um, that we had to get through. And um, but again, it's all worth it. I mean, it, it certainly is. What I like to finish off this show with, and you kind of alluded to them in your time uh, when you were with uh, the Springfield Indians, I like to have guests tell what I like to call broadcast horror stories, where something really weird or inconvenient happens during a broadcast. All the equipment explodes simultaneously. You have a horrible uh, broadcast vantage point or uh, maybe the fans are doing something weird when you're calling a game from the bleachers. Share one or two of what I like to call broadcast horror stories from your career. Well, back in the dark ages of a um, uh, Sure Mixer, which is all I had and a couple of headsets, a tape recorder, and some wiring to connect into a couple of phone lines, the American Hockey League would provide the two landlines, broadcast line obviously in the backup emergency line that the, the – um, engineer, the radio op, whoever it was, if it was a reliable person would call to tell you there was a problem. That was the only way I could do it with my equipment. Some guys had better equipment at that time where they could actually get it fed through their headsets and it was an interrupt button and so on. And you could, you could get that communicate as we do now, but you had to physically pick up the receiver, you know, if that phone rang, if that phone rang, that meant trouble. So you always lived in fear of that happening in Portland, Maine. There was, um, uh, you know, the emergency line and a movie theater had maybe one digit difference in the phone number. <laughs> and so this phone would ring all the time. And so you had to pick it up. You had to stop midstream, pick up the phone because you didn't know if it was your guy or someone asking you what time the movie started. And it would happen over and over again. So that was one thing that always happened there. I didn't have too many crashes uh, where it went off the air, horror stories like that. It wasn't right in Hershey, Pennsylvania, where um, I was calling the game between the Bears and the Indians and uh, thought everything was okay. And maybe late in the second period, I hadn't checked in, in maybe an hour. I just picked up the phone and, and checked in with my board off. And he told me, um, we've been off the air for about 90 minutes. Um, it's ABC news where we're, we're the, the Gulf war had started. And, uh, so you're done pack up your stuff. So I packed up my stuff at the, in the middle of the second period near the end of the second period and, uh, went down to the bus and sat on the bus, waited for the guys to come off and told them that we're at war. It's a little different. I remember putting on again, the Sony Walkman and team drove from Hershey back to Springfield and I remember going over the uh, George Washington Bridge in New York City and, and hearing uh, 
uh, a replay of, of President Bush's address to the nation that night. And it was it was scary because I remember the Vietnam conflict, but my generation didn't, I was born in 62, didn't come from any time of war. So this is the first time there was war. And um, it, it was weird. And I, I remember that. And uh, and the only other funny story I have is I punched a mascot out in Sherbrooke, Quebec one night in the playoffs. Um, this mascot sat in my way, wouldn't get out of the way. One thing led to another. I asked. I had no help from the security, and I had to, uh, I had to take a shot at him. So he knocked him off the ledge so I could actually see the game. Those are the three things that come to mind. <laughs> oh, that's that's good. Who are your favorite broadcasters to listen to? Uh, if you're just flipping through the dial at some time on a night off or trying to prepare? Oh, boy, that's that's hard. Um, it, when you reach when you reach this level, you 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 know, you, you appreciate everyone um, because you understand what everyone's going through. I think when you're younger, you know, for me, it was um, in hockey. It was it was Bob Cole, who I never got to hear very much. But by working in hockey in the 80s, when I did go to Canada, I heard this guy and I was like, wow, this is an outstanding, you know, hockey voice. I really like this. Um, Dan Kelly, when I was younger, was a, was an influence in my, my career. Uh, Fred Cusick, who I mentioned, Pat Summerall. I, I love Pat Summerall, and no matter what he did. But then when you get here, the, the person that I enjoy listening to the most is someone who has been a, a confidant, a mentor, has, has helped me a great deal. And I professionally um, uh, look at him and I also and I, I covet his friendship is, is Doc Emmerich. But it's different because um, Doc and I talk a great deal. We text back and forth. Um, and, and I, I absolutely admire everything about him, which also includes the personal side. So when you know somebody, it's, it's kind of different. So it skews maybe the way you look at it, but everybody else I hold in high regard. I mean, because I understand how difficult a job it is to do. And so no matter who it is, the, the, you know, Al Michaels, Jim Nance, Joe Buck, you know, the three signature voices, you know, those networks, I mean, you, you just, um, you just admire what they do because you're kind of in the same uh, role at some point. And, and so it's different. So it's not like you, you turn it on and say, I can't wait to listen to this guy. Um, no, I, I, there are new people on the way up that, you know, I'll hear and I'll be like, wow, this is, this is this is really good too, and I and I, I I look at it differently. So it's hard to say, as a in terms of enjoyment or entertainment, I look at it differently because I know what's going on. There was a time in my career and life I had no idea what went into a television broadcast, but now I can I can I can I can visualize it. I, I live it, so I know. So when I'm watching games, I'm not only hearing you know what's being said but admiring the director's cutting of the game and uh, the producer and, and, and understanding what the producer's doing because in television, it goes way beyond us. Like it's a, it's a big team of people that make it all work in, in harmony. So that's kind of the way I look at it. The last, not necessarily a question, but just the last statement I wanted to make is 
I know that you just won the North Carolina State Broadcaster of the Year, and what I read was your first time, so I just wanted to say congratulations on that, and uh, you are the 10th broadcaster from this year's class that has been on this podcast. So uh, thank you again for your time, and congratulations on winning the State Sportscaster of the Year. Well, thanks a lot. It's a, you know, it's a peer award voted on by your peers, so it means a lot. I appreciate you saying that. Once again, we are visiting with John Forsland. He is the in his 24th year with the Carolina Hurricanes. And, John, if anybody wanted to reach out to you, what would the best way to do so be? Reach out to me. I would just uh, you know, hop on Twitter, at John Forsland, uh, and hit me, and uh, we'll, we'll sync up on, on direct messaging, anything like that. I'm open to, um, and we can just go from there. But I'm always uh, – I try my best, you know, I try to, to help because I, I never forget um, what those days were like and, and can be. And uh, so we're all kind of in this together. So if I can help somebody, then I appreciate it. And Logan, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. It's nice to go back and relive some of these memories because uh, they're important to me. So I appreciate you giving me the platform. Thanks for listening to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Remember to subscribe to the show on the platform of your choice by clicking the big red subscribe button at the top of SayTheDamnScore.com. Also, please follow me on the social media outlet of your choice. Remember, Apple Podcast reviews, emails, or any other kind of honest feedback is always greatly appreciated and helps make the show better. Finally, please reach out to the guests of the show so they know you appreciate them sharing their stories on this podcast. As always, I'm Logan Anderson, and the next time you're on the air, make sure to say the damn score just a little bit more.